0: Welcome to Free Thoughts. I'm Trevor Burris. Joining me today is Michael F. Cannon, Director of Health Policy Studies at the Cato Institute. His new Cato study, published this week, is In the Tax Exclusion for Employer-Sponsored Health Insurance. Welcome back to the show, Michael.
1: Great to be here, Trevor.
0: So we probably, most of us know what employer-sponsored health insurance is, but just so we're all on the same page, can, can you explain how this system of getting insurance through your job works? Sure. Consumers purchase
1: lots of kinds of health insurance. There's homeowners insurance, renters insurance, life insurance, car insurance, health insurance. With the exception of life insurance, we don't really get any of these other types of insurance through our employer. And there's no obvious reason why we should get health insurance through our employer either. There may be reasons to do it, but there are also reasons not to do it. If you change jobs, for example, you lose your health insurance. And what if, what if you got a severe and expensive illness before you change jobs or lost a job or retired or, you know, your, your spouse divorces you or dies and she was your connection to that uh, insurance? Then you're, you have an expensive medical condition and no insurance, and now that's a pre-existing condition. So there, there are serious downsides to employer-sponsored insurance that don't exist if you buy insurance directly from an insurance company. So how did we end up with this system where the vast majority of privately insured people and even the uh, a majority of U.S. residents have insurance through an employer? A lot of people think it's because of World War II wage and price controls, which the federal government imposed on salaries but did not impose on – did not use to limit employer health benefits. So employers began offering more health benefits as a result of that. That's part of the story. But the story actually goes all the way back to 1913 and and the creation, the imposition and the implementation of, of the federal government's second individual income tax. The reason we have such uh, widespread employer-sponsored health insurance is because when Congress created the income tax, they didn't give any thought to whether to count something like health benefits as part of your income that the, uh, that the income tax would tax because, well, health benefits weren't that prevalent. And back then, we didn't even have modern health insurance. There was just no need for it at that time. So the treasury bureaucrats, there, was, there were some employers that offered some health benefits. So the treasury bureaucrats decided, wow, this is actually really a really complicated issue. We don't know whether and how to tax health benefits. So we're just going to throw up our hands and say they don't apply under the income tax. Well, that creates an interesting tax differential between compensation you get from your employer uh, in the form of cash versus health benefits. If the government is taxing the cash but not taxing the health benefits that you receive, then in effect, what the government is doing is it's penalizing you for every dollar you take as is, is, is cash income instead of health benefits. And so if you want to take your compensation as all as cash and buy health insurance yourself, there's an implicit penalty there. And it's that implicit penalty that has shaped the – market for health insurance in the United States it has shaped the market for health care in the United States it has also shaped the course of health policy for more than 100 years right now because that 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 historical accident has caused so many problems in the health insurance and health care markets that congress and state governments have had to intervene in markets over and over again trying to fix the problems that they ac- that the federal government accidentally created When it began taxing incomes.
0: But there are some benefits to this, at least in terms of getting, well, a lot of people maybe don't want to shop for health insurance. So that one possible benefit, but there are also benefits in the sense that your employer maybe can be better at purchasing health insurance than you are because your employer with a bunch of employees has more market power than an individual person uh and so maybe that's created a a more robust health insurance system than it would be if people were left to just shop on their own
1: well people don't want to shop for lots of things uh i i hate shopping for houses people Hate shopping for spouses. You know, we don't let our employers make these decisions for us, though. Uh, we don't do it for car insurance is a, is, is is a closer analog. And, and yet you're right that, you know, there are some benefits to that. Uh, but these consumers are not making these decisions decisions on a level playing field. The federal tax code dramatically increases by about 33% the after-tax price of insurance that you shop for yourself. So that's got to be having a really big impact. And as for purchasing power of employers, you'd think that because if employers are buying medical care on behalf of a large number of people, then they should be able to negotiate better discounts. But uh let me answer that first with theory, then with evidence. If the employers can rel- – rely on their enrollees to go along with the tough negotiating strategies. Like if they can rely on their employees to say, yeah, that's fine if you, include, if you exclude that hospital from our network because they're charging too much, then yeah, employers could do that. But they can't rely on their employees to do that because the savings are not from those strategies are not salient to employees. I mean, if you were buying your own health insurance, paying the premiums yourself – and thought, well, uh, you know, I'll get $50, I'll pay $50 less per month if I sign up for this health insurance plan that is a really tough negotiator with the hospitals, then you'll, you'll go for that because you'll get to keep that uh, $600 a year yourself. But if your employer is paying the premiums, even though the employer makes those payments with money that they are withholding from your salary, or not really withholding, it never enters your salary. It comes out of your total compensation. Even though that's part of your compensation, it's not salient to you in the same way. And so what happens when employers try to do this is when they try, try to negotiate with healthcare providers or insurance companies on their behalf, the, and they end up excluding that expensive hospital that some of your workers really want to be able to use, their workers rebel because they're not seeing any of the savings themselves. And employers, it turns out, are not very good price negotiators. Uh, We saw some of this in the 1990s when uh, employers used some of these uh, tools to try – managed care tools to try to reduce prices and utilization. There's a huge backlash and employers had to undo those steps. But there's also been a series of experiments that – uh, that insurers in California used, as well as employers like Safeway and, and some others, that made it, their enrollees cost-conscious when consuming certain covered services in a way they just weren't before. Basically, f- for say a hip or knee replacement, the insurance company said, we'll only pay $30,000. You can go wherever you want, but you're paying the balance if it's above that. Because some of the hospitals in California have been charging $60,000. The insurance companies and the employer on whose behalf they were negotiating could not get those prices down at those $60,000 hospitals. But when they made the consumers cost conscious, the consumers started asking for price information, getting price information, and changing their behavior in a way they didn't when it was their employer's money. And that forced those high price hospitals to reduce their their prices by 16% over a two-year period and, and in some cases up to 32%. So employers are just not very good price negotiators, at least not the way we pay for employer-sponsored insurance right now.
0: Let's take a step back to the question of health insurance in general. If you read some critiques of of the current American healthcare system, and I don't I don't necessarily mean from the Bernie Sanders crowd, but even from libertarians, it's that health insurance is a strange way of paying for health care. In general, uh, we, we shouldn't be insuring against uh, predictable costs in the way that we don't insure our oil changes for our automobile insurance, that in, our automobile insurance covers unexpected things. Is it the case that this employer-sponsored health insurance sort of created this kind of weird hybrid of, of paying for health insurance, or at least highly directed the American healthcare system toward this method of paying for health insurance for healthcare via health insurance. And that we could say health insurance maybe wouldn't even exist without this hundred year old tax break. I don't
1: think that's the case, but let's let me answer that question this way. Uh, In a nation of 330 million people, you've got a wide distribution of risk preferences when it comes to uh, what, wanting to be – wanting something to protect you from the cost of an expensive illness. Some people would uh, want very little or no risk protection. They are risk-neutral, risk-seeking, so they're not going to buy health insurance. Others are very risk-averse and not only do they want – uh, health insurance. They want the most comprehensive health insurance. They want a, a insurance against routine, low cost, out of pocket expenses. Because, and I think this is one way that healthcare is a special sector of the economy. Oftentimes, decisions about your health or the health of family members is they, those are so emotionally charged that you don't even want considerations like money to enter your decision making process when you're making decisions about about. The care you're going to consume, so for some people, it makes sense to buy first dollar coverage that uh where you you're not paying for anything out of pocket and as long as those folks are willing to pay, and able to pay those premiums, I think it's fine and I think a market would would cater to to those risk preferences. what the tax treatment of employer sponsored insurance does, or really the implicit penalty on uh on cash income and you're, therefore your right to make your own health care and health insurance decisions. What that does is it encourages people to buy more insurance than they would have otherwise. So the people who are you know kind of risk neutral might not buy health insurance, they end up buying uh, – enrolling in an employer-sponsored plan because there's this huge tax differential. And if you are naturally risk averse, you end up – buying more health insurance than before, and a lot more people end up in that camp where they are demanding first-dollar coverage. And it's not just because of the tax differential. That's certainly, I mean, a big part of it. But it's also because at first, and uh, and I think this would still be the case today, even if it didn't start out this way, at first, the tax preference for employer-sponsored insurance only applied to premium payments that your employer was making. And so when your employer is making the, is paying for the premiums, even though, as I mentioned, it's your money because they're reducing your compensation to pay for it. It doesn't feel like your money. It feels like someone else is paying for that rather than you. And so that I think gives an additional boost to demand for uh, low deductible, low cost sharing and even first dollar coverage. I think that would exist even in a free market. I would want it to exist uh, because that would, um, make a lot of people – improve welfare for a lot of people. Uh, But it would not exist to the extent we have it now and there would probably be more what we call managed care or utilization controls by insurance companies, particularly the ones – insurance companies, particularly the ones that offer first-dollar coverage uh, in the absence of the tax exclusion. And there are costs but also many
0: benefits that would come with that. So let's get into some numbers. Uh, I – I'm a single man who's who's relatively healthy or pretty healthy, uh, and Cato we're both employees of and who has done a
1: great job of losing weight
0: thank you and uh we're, we're both employees of Cato, so Cato pays us wages and then we also get health care through Cato. If we both declined and you have you have kids and I don't, but if we declined this uh how much more money would be put in our pocket uh, just if we declined what we were what we were offered in the and, and where is that money coming from?
1: So the Cato Institute is a very progressive employer because Cato does offer cash in lieu of health benefits for those who turn down Cato's health benefits. Now, it's not the full amount that they would have paid toward your health benefits, but it's more than a lot of employers offer. This is something that I get into in in the paper is one of the reasons we know that The money that employers pay toward health benefits comes out of workers' compensation is that when employers don't offer health benefits, a competitive labor market forces them to offer higher cash compensation. And you would think that that would mean that the Cato Institute, therefore, if if they're spending $16,000 on my health benefits for for me and my family, that if you decline them, they would pay you $16,000. Uh, that's what another firm might pay. Let's say, for the, for the sake of argument, that there were a thick and competitive market for libertarian policy wonks. Okay. If you were then to leave Cato, uh, you would be able to command a salary that included that $16,000 from another libertarian thing. And, uh, And therefore, Cato should be offering you that $16,000 as cash if you turn down health benefits, but it doesn't. That's the one place within firms is the one place where that compensating wage differential does not appear or does not appear fully. And the reason for that is, uh, again, the tax code. The IRS says that if an employer offers Trevor that $16,000 as cash – then the fact that they're offering all employees that sixteen thousand dollars means that uh, Michael Cannon is in constructive receipt of that sixteen thousand dollars in cash. So they'll tax it. they'll tax me as if I'm receiving that sixteen thousand dollars in cash. I'm not. I'm getting it in tax free health benefits. Uh, and so offering, but but what that means is that offering you that sixteen thousand dollars as cash would completely negate the benefit of the ta- tax preference for employer sponsored insurance for me and everyone else who does enroll in Cato's plan. So that's the one place where that tax differential does not show up. And uh, I I think it's just one of the many really interesting puzzles I explore in the paper.
0: One of the interesting things about these benefits uh, and the way that people don't often understand what you get into in the paper, a lot of people don't understand who is paying for these benefits, uh, their health health insurance through their employer. But they also don't understand how their compensation package – is affected by, say, rising healthcare costs, uh, because if our if Cato and under uh, employer mandate from a from the Affordable Care Act has to supply health insurance to more than fifty employees, so if the price of healthcare doubles for some reason, of health insurance doubles because of the underlying price of healthcare, then we essentially get a raise, but we don't even know it. Correct. That
1: is correct. Uh, the way economists look at it is like this. In a competitive labor market, what determines your total compensation is what we call your marginal productivity. That's the added value that you bring to your employer's production process. So if your marginal productivity is uh $50,000 per year, then that's how much the market – that's the d- direction in which the market is going to push a- employers to pay you total compensation of fifty thousand dollars per year, and if your employer offers you health benefits, since that's what determines your total compensation, if your employer offers you health benefits, that has to come out of that fifty thousand dollars, because if they offered you fifty thousand dollars plus health benefits, well, then they're paying you know maybe sixty six thousand dollars year the market is going to uh is going to punish them for that because you're not adding that much value to the production process. The market is going to push your well employers generally then to push you, your cash compensation down to the point where your cash compensation plus your health benefits spending equals your marginal productivity. And so when This gets very confusing because the way policy wonks and even employers talk about this, when they talk about that $16,000 that your employer pays toward your health insurance, they call that the employer contribution. I think that is a completely misleading uh, and even harmful term because that's like saying that when your employer withholds money from your paycheck to send to the IRS for income tax withholding. It's like calling that an employer contribution. It's not your employer contributing that. That's your money. And the same is true when it comes to your health benefits. The employer doesn't contribute anything to your health benefits. Your employer might make the payment, but they're making that payment with your money as surely as the income tax withholding they're sending to the IRS is your money. So if we want to fix the problems that the exclusion – this tax preference we call the tax exclusion for employer-sponsored insurance creates – one thing we got to do is we got to change the way we talk about how employers pay for this. and We've got to make clear that this is the workers' money
0: that they're spending. One term that you use in the paper that is interesting and uh, you have interesting data in there about compulsory health spending and how much of the the amount of healthcare that is being spent uh, in any given country is, is so-called compulsory. Uh, where does America sit on that compared to other countries, we talk about Scandinavian countries, and we got to think: well, they pay a ton in taxes. That's pretty compulsory, and they get healthcare in return, and so that they have some amount of compulsion to that. And it seems that we don't have that much compulsion because we're not paying for a not an NHS such as they have in the UK, and we have more freedom with our dollars. But it's not as good as as we would hope it to be.
1: So one of the uh, charts that I have in the paper is of. Uh tax burdens in advanced nations. And the United States is about is at about 25% of GDP. Government soaks up that much in taxes. Because government runs deficits, spending is a little higher. But we're almost at the bottom. That makes us look like a very uh, economically free country, and we are relatively. And you might think that we have a little, relatively free health sector as well. But the OECD puts out other data – on health spending that show that the United States not only is uh, is not a free market when it comes to healthcare, but it shows that we are ninth highest among 30-some OECD nations in terms of how much health spending is compulsory. We are at about 83% of health spending uh, in this country is compulsory. There's only about eight countries that have a higher share, and that's well above the OECD average, which is about 74 75%. The reason compulsory health spending in the United States is so high is first, half of health spending is, comes from the government. So that's where the government takes your money, taxes it from you – taxes are definitely compulsory – and then spends the money itself. That's half of the – of total health spending in the United States. But about another quarter or more of health spending is health spending by employers and workers through employer-sponsored insurance arrangements, and that spending is also compulsory. When you think about it, either you take that dollar of income as health benefits, or if you want to take it as cash, you end up having to pay thirty thousand three cents in tax on it, on average. What that means is that if the this the tax code has created a situation that is functionally equivalent to an individual mandate to purchase health insurance, the government is saying to you, either you enroll in this particular type of insurance that the government favors, which is employer-sponsored insurance, or take that money as cash, you have to pay more money to the government. That's indistinguishable functionally speaking, indistinguishable from an individual mandate. And that means that health spending on – or spending on employer-sponsored health insurance is every bit as compulsory as uh, spending on insurance under uh, an individual mandate. And therefore, a lot of – or most of what we refer to as, quote, private health spending in the United States is actually compulsory health spending and that is why we rank number nine – among OECD nations in terms of the share of health spending that is compulsory. And when you look at other measures of compulsory health spending, uh, the OECD puts out uh, data on this as well. The United States ranks first in compuls- in per capita compulsory health spending, which is not really much of a surprise. I mean, we're a high-income nation. We have higher health spending per capita. So, of, of course, uh, per capita compulsory health spending is going to be highest here but if you look at compulsory health spending as a share of gdp so you normalize it to the size of the economy the, the united states is still uh well it's still number 1 we have the highest rate of or the highest share of uh of gdp going to compulsory health spending at about 14% which is uh more than twice the oecd average of 6.6% uh and we're 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 even pretty pretty far ahead of number 2 Germany which is only which is less than 10% of gdp is compulsory health spending so when people uh, complain that health spending in the united states is so high and they ask why 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 do we sp- spend so much more than any other nation well the reason is partly because we're a wealthy nation but but mostly because the government requires us to spend that much
0: if what are the effects of all this because we we understand that There's high compulsion in other countries and then quite high compulsory spending here. But the satisfaction can be pretty high with the healthcare systems when you're sort of being forced to spend on something or you're being forced to spend on health insurance. But at the same time, Everyone knows the saying, he he who pays the piper calls the tune. So at the, begin, at the outset, one of the first things you said in the first five minutes or so is that this sort of radically changed the way our healthcare system is run and how health insurers, for example, have to be cost-conscious and concerned about a bunch of things because they're paying. And the same is true of the United States. So over the course of a century of this, what has it done, aside from just the the system of insurance that we have set up and how we're paying for healthcare, what has it done in terms of the type of healthcare we're receiving and the experience of the person consuming healthcare? It has had a serious,
1: profound negative impact on the consumer experience. We can say simplistically that, and intuitively that when the consumer isn't the one controlling the money, the system is not going to serve the consumer. In in more concrete terms, When you make the consumer not care about the cost of medical care uh, or the volume of services that they receive as much as they would if they were the ones controlling the money, Uh, when you make them cost unconscious when it comes to health insurance, that tilts the playing field toward particular types of health insurance and particular ways of delivering healthcare that have some benefits but also have tremendous costs and you tilt the playing field away from financing and delivery systems that would correct some of the problems that we see that we see in the in the in the first type of system and that are ubiquitous throughout the US health sec- health sector right now what cost unconsciousness favors is more comprehensive coverage with fewer managed care controls, broader choice of doctors, and paying healthcare providers on what we call a fee-for-service basis, so that uh, for every additional fee the doctor provides – or every additional service the doctor provides, they get an additional uh, separate fee. That encourages doctors to do more. It encourages doctors to do more because there's a lot of uncertainty in medicine. They don't really know if writing that prescription is going to help, but – uh, they'll go ahead and do it because it might help. On average, medicine is beneficial. The consumer's okay with it because they're paying for less of it uh, themselves than and they're being uh, uh, less – they're scrutinizing the doctor's recommendations less than they would if they were paying themselves. And so we end up getting more prescriptions. We get uh, more physician visits, more specialist visits, more hospitalizations, more tests, more procedures. And – When that happens, you get more wasteful care, more stuff that doesn't make the patient better off. And you actually create some really perverse incentives against improving quality. Because under a fee for service payment system, if you get injured by a doctor, a hospital, say there's a medication error, you get an infection, an avoidable infection in the hospital, they get paid first. Or or let's say they they uh, discharge you from the hospital before you're ready and you have to come back. The healthcare providers get paid first for providing the low-quality care that resulted in you needing more services. And then they get paid again for the additional services that you require. And if they try to fix that situation by putting processes in place to avoid that low-quality care while well, they're out, the cost of those systems, which could be electronic medical records or the research necessary to find out if a particular process works, they're out that cost and they're out those additional payments. The, the entire US health sector, and it's not just the exclusion, uh, the, the tax exclusion for employer-sponsored insurance that does this. It's also the Medicare program. But the Medicare program is kind of a creature of the exclusion. Uh, but the entire US health sector tilts in the direction of this type of fee-for-service payment that promotes a lot of low-quality care. I actually have another paper out on how this happens in Medicare. And uh, that low-quality care uh, is ubiquitous. It is – and we're having a hard time combating it because all the incentives are lined up to encourage it and discourage any quality improvements. If we had a level playing field where consumers were the ones paying for their premiums, uh, if if there were no tax distortions of their – health insurance decisions, then we get a lot more of that other type of financing and delivery system, the other sorts of health plans that actually do the research into how to avoid these medical errors and that would force the fee-for-service providers to compete and improve uh, the quality of care. We don't get that kind of competition. And so as, as much as the tax code has increased the cost of healthcare and made access to healthcare less secure because you could lose your insurance when you lose your job maybe the worst thing that it's that it's
0: done is erode the quality of care that patients receive seems like a good argument for a single payer or a much more centralized payment structure system. And maybe you can get into some of the the Medicare stuff you were talking about because I presume, although I don't exactly know, but I presume that in the NHS, for example, or in the Canadian healthcare system, if you're a doctor in that system, you don't get fee for service pay because otherwise you'd be able to extract money from the taxpayer at will seemingly, or, or if you just got a solid, salary, like $150,000 a year, and provide these people with care, and therefore, you're not going to have them going overboard with care, and you'll be able to have sort of an official oversight of what type of care works and what type of care doesn't work.
1: So different countries come with this problem in different ways. In some cases, they will uh, do the polar opposite of fee-for-service. They will give hospitals or other providers a fixed sum of money each year and say, This is all the money you get to treat all the patients that are going to come in your door. Manage it wisely. Uh, In other places, they do fee-for-service and sometimes they do a hybrid of these two things where uh, they'll do fee-for-service up to a cap. And there is no perfect way of paying healthcare providers. If we could measure healthcare quality precisely – well, then it'd be very easy to pay healthcare providers because we know exactly whom to pay and 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 even how much. But because there's so much variation in medicine, there's so much uncertainty about whether what the doctor did led to a good outcome or didn't lead to a bad outcome. That we have to use proxies for quality, and uh, and every proxy for quality is going to commit type one and type two errors. It's going to. Um, uh, is going to reward some forms of low quality care. The the thrust of that medicare paper that i mentioned is that the way a market addresses this problem is it allows all sorts of different ways of paying for medical care including innovations in payment and the virtues of each system and, and that means you'll you'll have way, uh, payment systems out there that will reward all dimensions of quality and uh competition between those systems forces each of them to improve on the dimensions of quality where they're weak. We're not getting that right now and I don't think any advanced nation allows enough competition between payment systems to promote all dimensions of quality. And uh, That's why uh, in the paper uh, that uh, that we released yesterday on the tax exclusion as well as in the Medicare paper that I mentioned – I talk about the importance of eliminating these distortions that encourage some forms of uh, payment and uh, some uh, uh, means of healthcare delivery over others so that we can get all of that uh, quality improvement um, and and, and force existing providers to deliver
0: much higher quality care than they are now. Talk about those other payment systems because maybe it's just a – a problem with the relatively few options that seem available in the OECD Western world that we kind of seem to have insurance or government provided healthcare of some sort. What other methods are out there of and I'm, of paying for healthcare that could be tried if we fixed, it, fixed some of these distortions?
1: Well, a lot of them are already out there. They're just they just can't catch on because the government has stacked the deck against them. If you have ever lived on the West coast, you might have, en- or in the DC area, you might have enrolled in Kaiser Permanente. Kaiser Permanente is sort of the last man standing among the uh, integrated and what we call integrated and prepaid uh, delivery systems that Uh, cropped up in various parts of the country, but uh, uh, under lobbying pressure from doctors who didn't want to lose their autonomy and their incomes, uh, uh, the government killed these uh, almost everywhere. I mentioned that uh, at at one extreme, you've uh, got a payment system called fee-for-service where the uh, provider gets more money than any of the more services they deliver. Health systems like Kaiser Permanente operate on the basis of what we call prepayments or capitation or global budgets. Uh, in Kaiser's case, the insurance company and the healthcare providers are basically the same corporate entity. So all the money they soak up in premiums is all the money they have to provide healthcare to all of their members over the course of a year. And so that is – that creates a situation where if they provide you healthcare, they don't get more money. They actually end up with less. Now that Creates perverse incentives, obvious perverse incentives. They might deny you care. And a lot of people complained about Kaiser for that reason. But Kaiser also leads the industry on a lot of quality uh, d- dimensions of quality, like convenience. My uh, sister in law uh, belongs to Kaiser in the DC area. She recently had brain surgery. She talks about, of course, this, that was very harrowing, but she talks about how much easier it was that she could go from this. Uh, doctor to this specialist, to that specialist, to the pharmacy, all within the same building. I've never had an experience like that. Kaiser makes that possible. Kaiser is also an, an innovator when it comes to electronic medical records because they save a lot more money than other healthcare providers do when they avoid waste and duplication and, and medical errors uh, uh, using electronic medical records. Those, one of the reasons Kaiser doesn't exist in, uh, in more states. And there's been research on this, is that uh, when they try to enter new states, their customers, the enrollees, are not cost conscious enough for Kaiser's low premiums to give them the advantage that it should. And so in states like North Carolina, where they've tried to enter the market, they had to – they ultimately folded because they could not – because the tax exclusion for employer-sponsored insurance makes consumers – of health insurance cost unconscious so that these sorts of plans can't uh often can't even get their foot in the door. there are other obstacles to these sorts of plans that uh uh have to do with state licensing of clinicians and state licensing of health insurance uh but probably the biggest one is the tax
0: exclusion let's let's go to uh, michael cannon's libertopia then. We, we obviously just removing the employer employer sponsored health insurance tax exclusion isn't, isn't everything that needs to be done, but give me your kind of thousand flowers blooming idea here of, I'm not going to ask you to design a healthcare system from scratch, but what happens if we give this money to consumers? Sure. More places like Kaiser, will we see more things like medical care in a Walmart? Uh, I, I'm not really a entrepreneur, so I can't really think of other ways of doing this, but it seems like there's a bunch of possibilities here.
1: Remember, I said this is a story of the income tax. In in Michael Cannon's Libertopia, not only would we get rid of the exclusion uh, for employer-sponsored insurance, we would get rid of the income tax and then payroll taxes as well. And Some people would say, oh, you can't do that. You'd have to get rid of most of the federal government, to which I would say, hey, don't threaten me with a good time. Uh, but assuming all we did was get rid of the preferential tax treatment for employer-sponsored insurance, you would see a lot of really remarkable things happening um, uh, and wonderfully beneficial things. The first one is about a trillion dollars of workers' earnings that employers currently control would go to workers. In the paper, I talk about how to make sure that happens immediately by expanding health savings accounts. But right now, right now. This supposed tax break is letting employers control $1 trillion of their workers' earnings and use it to make their healthcare decisions for them. If we reformed the exclusion to give workers that $1 trillion, that would constitute a larger effective tax cut than any of us have seen in our lifetimes. The Reagan tax cut returned only about 2.6% of GDP to workers. If you reform the exclusion, you can return about 4% of GDP to workers. So that is a huge effective tax cut, $1 trillion per year. And then once the workers are controlling that money, you, they are going to spend it very differently than their employers do. A lot of people w- would want to remain in their employer plans, and I don't have any objection to that, as long as people who don't want to do that are free to do it. So they don't face any penalties if, if they make a different choice. So the next thing you would see is you would see a lot more health insurance choices. I think uh, it would take time for additional plans like Kaiser to uh, be able to enter new markets. Eventually, you would see that though. You would see healthcare becoming much simpler uh, as I suggested because people wouldn't be driving all across town and trying to find uh, – uh, trying to shop for specialists on their own. They would make one decision about the health system that's going to serve them. If they don't like it, then they would switch to another health system. Uh, but all that you know the process of selecting uh providers and uh, uh and assimilating all of the information that multiple prov- providers give you, and billing would all be much, much simpler. uh We would also uh see a lot of uh a lot of cost conscious behavior on patient uh, on the part of patients. When they're buying health insurance, they'd probably buy less of it because they would see the premium savings rather than uh, that going to – seeming like it's going to their employer and being very opaque to them. That means they would be paying for more medical care out of pocket because when you buy less coverage, you're paying for more out of pocket. And what research shows us is that when consumers do that, they scrutinize prices more and prices would come down more. I mentioned earlier about how prices for uh, a lot of uh, – uh, Services came down by up to 32% over a two-year period just because insurance companies made patients more cost-conscious. That is the most important thing we can do to bring healthcare within the reach of people who can't afford it today is falling prices, both because more people can afford healthcare themselves and those who can't, it's going to be easier for the rest of us to help them because prices are lower. And beyond that, I mean, I could talk about a lot of other things, but one one piece that really excites me is when consumers are paying for more of their medical care themselves and when the, more consumers are paying uh, purchasing their health insurance themselves, so they're paying the premiums, it's going to be easier to get rid of unnecessary and unwanted regulatory costs. Right now, when I talk to people about the costs that – clinician licensing is imposing on them and preventing them from being able to see a nurse practitioner who practices independently or or that clinician licensing completely bars dental therapists from their state. So they have to pay a lot more for tooth extractions and and cleanings and so forth. Uh, It kind of falls on deaf ears if they're heavily insured and their employer is paying uh, or or the cost of those regulations is not salient to them. But when they're paying for more of their medical care themselves and their health insurance, dental insurance premiums themselves, then it's going to be easier to roll back those unnecessary and really harmful regulations.
0: Thinking about your paper and looking, you know, I, I was looking around and researching some of the some other Western OECD healthcare systems. And the thing that struck me is we can sit around and talk about, oh, this is how, you know, much we'd unleash if we gave consumers control over their dollars and all this. Innovation and cost cutting that could happen, but the overall trend in the Western world is clearly to not let patients control their money. Uh, it's almost a as almost a defining rule. They're either going to have it wrapped up in government, or it's going to be wrapped up in the way we've discussed today. So maybe it's a, a big philosophical question about why no this idea that this would empower so many things, and we just need to try it. Uh, well, why? why is no one trying it why is this the preference for how we spend money on healthcare
1: that's a really good question and uh i i think the answer has to do with um it has to do with uh there's i think there's a signaling story there's a fear story and there's a public choice story the signaling story is a lot of people Want to send the signal that every every human matters, every human being matters, and so we're not going to let anyone go without life saving medical care. Sending that signal means a lot to them, and so when entrepreneurial politicians stand up and say, uh, "Now that we've won the peace, we're going to have the government nationalize the entire health sector and make healthcare free at uh, the point of service," uh, a lot of people will say, "Yes, I want that." Uh, There's also a fear story. Uh, People are afraid uh, that they might fall on hard times and be unable to afford the medical care that they need, or one of their loved ones might. And that, I think, leads to support for these sorts of programs. There's also a public choice story. The public choice story is that uh, given what other support might exist for government subsidies for healthcare, the people who would benefit from those subsidies um, before uh, government creates them and the people who benefit from them after government creates them work very hard to make sure that those subsidies are as big as possible uh, and make sh- they work very hard to p- make sure that they don't go away because their livelihoods depend on them. And I think you can see that in every advanced nation. Uh, you can see it here in the United States. The biggest supporters of Medicare, Medicaid, Obamacare, are uh, are are not the people enrolled in those programs. Although certainly they do support it, they at least just don't want you to uh, take something away from them. But the biggest supporters are the core are, are, are the folks in the health care industry who receive those government subsidies. It's the hospitals. It's the drug companies. It's the insurance companies. In many cases, because in the Medicare and Medicaid programs, uh, oftentimes the instead of writing checks to healthcare providers, the government's writing checks to insurance companies, and those are the people with all of the lobbying might in Washington D.C. But you can also see this in in other countries where unions of doctors and unions of nurses have a tremendous sway over how those health systems operate. And Public choice economics tells us why that is. It's because those groups have the most at stake. On an individual level, they 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 have uh, they have the most at stake. Their livelihoods depend on this in a way that you know my livelihood does not. Yours does not. You, our health may depend on it, but not usually. And uh, they are easy to much easier to organize than than patients are. So even if a Government program, be it partial or universal, even if that government program is not serving its enrollees particularly well, it's still very hard to get rid of it because it is serving the health sector, the healthcare providers, and others very well by transferring vast resources to them, and so it's very difficult to get rid of for that reason. Every time someone brings this up, I think about um, you know the, the the sugar program or the sugar beet program or the Northeast Dairy Compact. These are all agriculture policies that have a very small number of beneficiaries who make a lot of money off of them. We're talking farmers and, uh, and others. And they increase the price of food for millions of people who vastly outnumber the beneficiaries of this program, low-income people whose, <laughs> whose food bills we should not be increasing, but we can't get rid of the programs, even though in a, in a democracy the majority is supposed to win. We can't get rid of these programs because we can't organize enough people to overcome the lobbying bite of this very small group of people that will spend tons of resources to protect these programs. And there's a very similar story at play when it comes to uh, to government-run healthcare in the United States and America.
0: Thanks for listening. If you enjoy Free Thoughts, make sure to rate and review us in Apple Podcasts or in your favorite podcast app. Free Thoughts is produced by Landry Ayers. If you'd like to learn more about libertarianism, visit us on the web at libertarianism.org.